0: A week of reunions in Israel really ran the gamut of emotion. You had the primal scream of a Palestinian mother, brought together with her daughter, Malek, who was released as part of the Hamas hostage deal after serving almost eight years in an Israeli jail. Thomas Hand was able to hug his nine-year-old daughter, Emily, again. After initially being told she was killed during the Hamas terror attack, Emily was released from captivity in Gaza, but not without emotional scars. She cried
1: until her face was red and blotchy. She couldn't stop. She, she didn't want any comfort. I think, I guess she's forgotten how to be
0: comforted. There was little comfort for family members waiting by the phone to see if their loved one was on the list to be freed. Yarden Gonen's sister was kidnapped from the Nova music festival. I don't know even if she's have if she have her hand or not if she, maybe she's cut off maybe she's not alive and i can't stress how much uh, the unknowing is painful truly painful and then there are those whose loved ones were killed by hamas Ruma Arusi Tarshansky's son was killed on october 7th but her 13-year-old daughter was taken hostage. She was eventually freed. But before that, Ruma told CNN that she could not even begin the grieving process for her son, Lior. There just wasn't any space. When Gavli when came, we have made time to grieve on Lior. And uh, until then, Maccabi Haifa
1: and other his uh, friends and the surrounding us, they... It's very wrong in the art that
0: they do it for us. Others had to do the grieving for her until she was ready. That really stuck with me. And it got me wondering, is there a playbook for grief? How do we even know where to start? My guest this week is CNN's Anderson Cooper. He's the anchor of AC360 and host of the podcast, All There Is, which is back for a new season, exploring grief and loss. We're going to talk about what he's learned about how we all can face our grief and how he brought those lessons with him to Israel. From CNN, this is one thing. I'm David Rind. Hey, Anderson. Hey. So for those who have not heard the first season of All There Is, how would you describe it? It's a podcast that's I started, I'm not like a
1: podcast person. I mean, I've, I've listened to a couple of podcasts in my life that have been amazing. Yeah. Um, and it's not that I'm, it's a failure on my part that I'm old and can't even really figure out exactly where to get podcasts. But um, but I didn't plan on doing a podcast. I was going through my mom's things after she died, a couple of years after she died, and I was selling her apartment and finding boxes of things that belong to my dad and my brother. And I started making these recordings because that's sort of what I do to help my, I either write stuff out or I record stuff mm. to just help me sort of figure stuff out. And um, yeah, I just felt so lonely in this process. And I thought this is weird that I feel so lonely in this because this is something everybody will have to do at some point in their life, more or less. And the first season was, was built around me going through these things and discovering these things that had belonged to my dad and my brother. And it brought up memories and, and conversations about loss, um, which I'd never really had before.
0: Right, and so what made you wanna do a season two?
1: I did not plan on doing a season two. I was sort of overwhelmed by the first season. I was amazed by the response to it. The the interactions I had with people in airports and on the street were deeply personal and incredibly moving to me. But I went from like zero to 60, from like never talking about grief and loss Mm. to suddenly talking about it. And I just needed to take a break after like eight episodes. I just decided I'm gonna I'm gonna stop doing this. Yeah. Um but I had solicited voicemails from people for the last episode. I wanted the last episode to be from, from listeners. And we got a ton of them. I only had time to listen to like two hundred voicemails before I had to select some and write the last episode. And there were more than a thousand calls I hadn't heard. Wow. And a couple months ago I felt bad about that. I felt guilty about it and I felt like I've asked these people to leave and you know very deeply moving messages, and I haven't listened to them all, so I just started listening to them on my own. I lost my father when I was 10. My beautiful son died three years ago. My mother died when I was 13. I felt compelled to call.
0: We lost our son, Brad, eight years ago. ago My dad took my
1: mom's life and then took his own. It ended up being more than 46 hours of messages. Wow. And, yeah, it was among the most moving experiences in my life.
0: I could feel his heart pounding in my chest. I said, it's already, and I got you. I love you. And I felt his heart stop. Today, I've listened to probably about three
1: hours of voicemails from people, and every now and then I just have to stop, because it's... uh... (sighs) So, I'm in the basement of my house, and, surprise, it is filled with boxes. And... It motivated me to start going through the boxes of stuff again that I'd stopped going through when the podcast ended because it was just too much. Here it is. And then then, literally the first box I opened up was, it turned out to be a box of my dad's papers. Doesn't have a a year on it, but. And the first thing in that box I took was a file and I opened up the file. And it was an, an essay my dad had written 40 years ago entitled The Importance of Grieving. And then he quotes a psychologist Psychoanalytic studies have shown that when a person is unable to complete a morning task in childhood, he either has to surrender his emotions in order that they do not suddenly overwhelm him, or else he may be haunted constantly throughout his life, with a sadness for which he can never find an appropriate explanation. And I realized, this is me. And here it is my dad writing this when I was a little kid. He knew he was at great risk of dying early. And maybe he did write this with me in mind, my brother in mind, and maybe he maybe he thought one day, maybe those kids will come across this essay. I like to think of it as like an, a message from him. It made me realize I've never really grieved. I've never really allowed myself to grieve. And like a lot of people, I pushed it down deep inside as a little kid and I ran very fast my entire life from it and ran toward it in war zones um, and disasters and would touch it, but be able to leave it. And and that's why I decided to do a second season, because I need to talk to people who have lived with grief and are living with it and have learned from it, because I need to figure out how to do that.
0: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, and this week on Chasing Life, the fascinating brain science behind simply tidying up your environment and how we can all do it better.
1: I need to be able to learn how to organize as a messy person.
0: That's Casey Davis. She's a mom. She's also a licensed therapist.
1: I need skills that work with my brain instead of against my brain.
0: So get ready to learn how to cut down the clutter in your home and in your mind. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. I did want to ask about your time in Israel covering the war because grief is right at the forefront of these conversations that you're having with people who have lost someone yeah. or who have family members being held hostage. So, like, how do you approach those conversations?
1: Very tenderly and um, very softly, and I think these are the most important conversations one can have. I, I have had a hard time even talking about the three weeks that I spent in Israel, I've seen a lot of death up close. um, And I'm incredibly moved to be in the company of people who have suffered and to be able to step into somebody's pain and step into somebody's life at the tenderest, worst moment of their life and talk to them. And I take that really seriously. I mean, look, Israel, Gaza, grief is everywhere. I mean, it is people in cafes and on the street in you know, kibbutzim, in wherever you went, everybody had lost somebody. Shiri's children are so beautiful. when I saw the, the, the photo of, is it Kafir? Yes, Kafir with his red hair and I mean, his, his face, they're just so, their innocence is just extraordinary. Kafir is a Hebrew word for lion. Of years that he would you a know, fair, I talked to Ifat Seiler, who's her cousin Shiri Babas, and her two little beautiful children, and her husband Yarden were all taken, and you know she was inconsolable. I want my family back. Everyone needs to come back. I sat down with her in a park, and you know she was weeping. I want my family, if they by any chance are watching this, I want them to know that we love them and we're doing everything we can to get them. I want them to be strong and name we are strong. And And one of the things she said to me, it really stays with me, she said, you know, that the only thing that was sort of keeping her going in that moment was sitting there on that bench talking to me. And it wasn't something about me. It was just the the need to sort of talk
0: about it. The and act of doing.
1: Yeah. Kept and, it going. And Rachel Goldberg and John Poland, whose son Hirsch had his left arm blown off and has been taken by Hamas, and they don't know where he is or if he's alive, if he's not.
0: It's hard for us to advocate for our kid over other kids. And, and it's it's not even that I want to do that. is not the only wounded one. I know there are other wounded. And I just think that probably deserves to be a category. People who need immediate medical attention haven't been discussed as the world-
1: These are deep wellsprings of pain. And to be invited into somebody's home and talk to them in that most tender of moments is uh, it's something I, I think about and take very seriously.
0: For me personally, like I consider myself very lucky because I have not experienced a ton of loss mm-hmm. in my life yet, but but I know that I will. Yeah, And I guess I'm wondering like how people in that situation can prepare themselves or start doing that work. Like how do you think about that?
1: I don't know. I mean, I clearly don't know much about grief because I just realized I've never grieved before. So uh, the thing I I recommend for people is to just think about, I mean, thankfully we all have phones now and we all have millions of pictures of the people we love and we have lots of recordings of the people we love. I I didn't have a voice recording of my dad who died in 1978 uh, until somebody sent me a radio interview a few years ago, but that's the only little sound I have of my dad's voice. Mm. And you know, one of the things I encourage a lot of people to try to do is have conversations, particularly with the older people in their life, grandparents, parents, not just the conversations you have as the grandchild or the, the the child of somebody, but getting to know these people in your life in a different way before the end of their lives. It's something I consciously did with my mom when she turned 91. We consciously sat, you know, had a year-long conversation via email and on the phone about all these things that we didn't know about each other or never talked about with each other. So that by 95, when she died, there was there was nothing left unsaid between us because it's a lot different to lose somebody when they know you and you know them and there is nothing left unsaid between you. It's a lot easier to grieve that than it is all the woulda, shoulda's and coulda's mm. and I wish I'd.
0: Like you're not sure what you're missing out on when you don't have those those conversations and then you can't.
1: Yeah, it's. Too, I mean, no one knows how much time we have and suddenly it's too late and you can never, you know, you think you're gonna remember all these things about a person. I used to remember the sound my brother made when he would come home from school and the sound of the lock opening up and him putting his keys down on the the table by the door and, you know, his shoes walking on the wooden floor. I remember, I used to know all those sounds. I don't remember them anymore. I don't remember the sound of his voice anymore. I don't have any recordings of his voice. Those are things it was impossible for me to imagine right when he died that I wouldn't always remember, but I don't, and I think it happens very fast. You immediately start to forget all these little details And I I think it's, I urge people to record that stuff and write it down and write down the stories and interview the people that you love um, because those are things you can hold on to.
0: Hmm. That's great advice. Well, again, the podcast is all there is. The first episode of the second season is out right now. Anderson, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. One Thing is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Paula Ortiz and me, David Rind. Our senior producer is Fez Jamil. Our supervising producer is Greg Peppers. Matt Dempsey is our production manager. Dan DeZula is our technical director. And Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of CNN Audio. We get support from Alex Maniseri, Robert Mathers, John Dionora, Lenny Steinhardt, Jameis Andres, Nicole Pesseroux, and Lisa Namarou. Special thanks to Shimrit Chitri, Ronnie Bettis, and Katie Hinman. We'll be back next Sunday with another episode. And if you're enjoying the show, the easiest thing you can do is just tell a friend. Word of mouth, it still works. Talk to you later.
1: Hi, everyone. I've joined forces with best-selling author and Harvard professor, Arthur C. Brooks. Our book, Build the Life You Want, resonated with readers with a debut at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Now, Arthur and I are together again for this three-part podcast series. We have a personality profiling task. And- I think and- people are loving that, too. We'll also answer questions from readers.
0: How is your approach to getting happier changed?
1: So let's get happier. This is Build the Life You Want, the podcast.